0: Thanks to the Barking Dog next door. This is Australian Radio Bruce News, brought to you by Cry Malt. <laughs> Sorry, Prof. I've, uh, I, can you, I can see you throwing. That's all right. It's,
1: it's good <laughs> to change up. Let me. I'll, I'll take it from here. <laughs> no, go on. Go on. Yeah. He's no, Matt oh, Kierkegaard, right. editor of Australian Bruce News. And as ever, he's joined by his good friend, beer compadre, and all-round good beer bloke, Pete Mitchum. Pete, g'day. G'day, Matt. <laughs> g'day, Barking Dog next door. It's, look, this yes. is working without a net, working with animals and children, all these things they say you shouldn't do, uh, recording via Skype between Melbourne and Brisbane. Um, and, and it is what it is.
0: It is. It is. So, listeners, uh, as you probably noticed, uh, that, yes, it's, it's school holidays. The neighbours have gone away and left their yapping dog in the backyard. Nothing I can do about it. Uh, it's just a little bit – no, actually, I'm not going to make any jokes. I the like <laughs>
1: I've got um, I've got 3 3 pre-teens. I've locked them up in the uh, bedroom at the other end of the house and given <laughs> and then just plugged devices in and um they're happy as. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe throw something over the you know, throw something over the fence for it, Matt. Throw a chop or a bone. So I was going to say a brick, but um, oh, yeah, well, you well, can well, a chop to the brick i suppose. <laughs> Funnily
0: enough. That's exactly what I was going to say. But... Contact
1: details again, folks. It's at beerblokes.com.au.
0: Yes. So, don't want to upset those vegans, mate. Um so, Prof, uh, mate, how's your week been? Pretty I'm, sure, all, I'm, pretty, sure, uh, I'm pretty sure bricks are vegan. <laughs> yeah, they are. The chop, chopped, not so much.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I see what you're going on. Uh Yeah, no, I had a good week. Had a very good week.
0: What, what, any uh, beer-related
1: activities of note? Uh, no, it was actually it was quite a, a nice, quiet one this week.
0: Uh, okay, this what is going to be a very short Yeah. <laughs> well, so I was just know. having a
1: sip of coffee. You're doing an old uh, sip of cold coffee. That's right, gearing up for the um, the Australian Craft Brewers Conference, which is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So, uh, you know, just preparing for that.
0: Looking forward to that. And uh, Yeah, so any beer mail, any new beers you tried this week?
1: Uh, I did. I tried the, the Four Pines, their oh, new Amber Ale, which I thought was uh, very well made. Um, I did see a little bit of... Oh, would it surprise you to hear that there was a little bit of criticism online uh, from people saying it wasn't hoppy enough? Uh, I I didn't get that. I thought well, it's, it's not meant to be an American amber, is it? I I didn't think. Um, Mosaic. So yeah, maybe it's a it's a restrained um, hop character, but I thought that uh, made it um, any more. And I think it it might have been a little bit unbalanced with the the beautiful amber malt.
0: But it's, I mean, it's it's one of those things. You know, were they targeting the American? You know, American being very hop.
1: Focused well, I, on I hop wonder forward. whether whether showcasing mosaic and calling it an amber ale, people assume that it's going to be an American style amber because the mosaic, I guess, is a, a fairly you know hop forward um, exp- uh, ingredient in 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 those bigger American style IPAs that we've we've grown accustomed to. Perhaps I don't know i I just figured that um it drank very well it was beautifully balanced um and went very well with um with some grilled meat so
0: which is exactly know. how i i tried some as well and uh, had it had mine with a nice uh, steak um and yeah it, it went beautifully um but look at it, it's a very well made beer you can't fault it for anything um if if you're on a bit of a hop trip um you know Probably this isn't for you, but you know, don't take pot shots at a a, a beer that is you know, very very well made and sort of targeting a, a a different clientele. Yeah, there you go. What about you? you, you, oh, you I should you. I should say that Four Pines aren't are they? Are they sponsors?
1: Uh, I think they may yeah, have. They, they may have bought an ad in the past. I'm pretty sure.
0: That, that they, I think they've got
1: a logo on the site yeah, somewhere. Yeah, and and yeah, look, good uh, good supporters of of what we do, and that's not why. Um,
0: no, no, no. But mean, look, just if there's something the there to lady, defend, I'll, I, I'll defend it. You know, just ringing the John Laws bell there. That's it, yes, like no, based, based on our honest it. opinion. Yeah, honest opinion. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh, mate, I, I talked a little bit about Cooper's Vintage last week where I'd sent the, the pack and now the embargo is lifted and I can talk a little bit about it. And yesterday, we're recording this on Wednesday, um, the 29th uh, of June. Yesterday, I was lucky enough to get the largesse of the uh, Cooper's family who flew me down to Adelaide to be there for the launch. Um, and had a lovely lunch um, at the new Cooper's Ale House. It's uh, Cooper's. It's, it's interesting to see how prevalent Cooper's is in Adelaide. You know, coming from Brisbane, where Cooper's still has that little bit of, whilst it's, you know, arguably mainstreamy um, in, in the sense that it's in a lot of pubs and it crosses all sorts of divides. In Adelaide, Cooper's is pretty much everywhere, and so you're seeing a whole lot of partnerships where Cooper's have, have got a little, you know, sort of, uh Barbecue joint in 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 Rundle Mall, and then you know most venues have a big Coopers presence, and this was the Coopers Ale House, which is part of ALH, um, a, a new um, ale house out at uh, Jep's Cross, I think the suburb's called, um, and you know you're you're really starting to go mainstream when you're partnering up with ALH, uh, you know Woolworths hotel arm, but uh, yeah, it's a striking venue, Prof. It's a uh, beautifully uh, done, you know it's a it, you wouldn't call it soulless, but you would call it, um, you know, uh, commercially designed. I, I, I think you would say. But at the same time, it's got, you know, an amazing. I think, I think
1: tap- most, most most of our listeners, Matt, would be able to picture the kind of look and the and the the feel and the vibe.
0: Yeah, yeah. Certainly not grunge. Certainly, you know, there's no uh, graffiti on the wall. There's no exposed pipes, except you know where they've been, to, you know, uh, deliberately done um, to a to a theme. But uh, it's got a beautiful tap room that's all open in, in glass. Also, keg room, so you can see all of the the um, kegs. So it's a real showcase for the the Cooper's kegs and you know some very nice uh, pipe work. That's almost um, uh, optic-ish. We we did the podcast a couple of weeks ago with the the, the fonts that have the clear glass, and there's an element of that design, but sort of pipes. It wasn't functional. It was just purely um, visual theatre. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's it, it's certainly the sort of place that you creates a little bit more interest back in going to the pub rather than just pokies and uh, you know, plasma screens, which it also had in various areas in, in abundance. But the the actual bar. Um was quite nicely done. So yeah, so it was nice to get down there and try the vintage ale, find out a little bit about it. Um you know, Prof, it's still one of those um uh, yeah, maybe it, it, it dates us a little bit. It's still one of those beers that I get excited about because it does trace its lineage back to a time when there weren't you know, a, a very many one-offs or seasonal or special releases a year, um and I and I'd look forward to it. These days there're probably, you know, two or three a week. Um but i i, st- I still love uh, what what would they do with the vintage oil?
1: yeah and look there are, it's fair to say there are not too many beers that you buy seven of deliberately one to have now or or perhaps two you know to share and then the other six to sort of tuck under your uh, under the bed uh to uh to to cellar
0: yeah and i might even put some links in the show notes because i've talked about the cooper's time machine in the past where you You know, buy a carton at you know $75, which you know is two or three half-decent bottles of wine. Um, But you sort of drink, you know, maybe a six-pack in the first year, and then put it in somewhere cool. And over the next five, eight, ten years, pull it out and then do some do your own vertical tastings. And uh, to to be able to sell a you know $75 carton of beer and get 10 years enjoyment out of it is a pretty cheap um, price. Um, But uh, it's 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 an interesting way to see how age and time um, affects the hop character of a beer that starts out quite hoppy and uh, initially I think the, the beer was around about 40 IBUs and now they're up pushing 60 um, and so it's a, it's a fairly you know, it, it, it's funny though it doesn't taste much more and I guess that's a, on account of the Lupulin shift but uh, no, it's a, it's a great beer to to drink yeah. now and also to see how it, how it ages
1: Yeah, I was very lucky three, three years ago at uh, Gab's in Melbourne to have the Coopers came along, uh, who came along? I think there was what um, Glenn, John Manassas and Simon Fay came along and did a, a, a vertical tasting of, I think it might have been the 2012 back to 2009. Uh, and really interesting to see how, yeah, how where some of the carbonation had softened slightly, but how some of that malt and some of that sort of almost barley wine texture sort of came through. Um, as the as the hops began to sort of drop out a little bit, just a, just a very interesting, um, and, it, and it's not it's it's not the same recipe every year, is my understanding.
0: Is that correct? The malt no no so so the malt is fundamentally the same, um, and they play around a little bit with the hops each year. So this year the hops are, um, I know they've got some Northern Brewer and um, they've got some Melba in there. I'll just call Astra. the uh, Astra is the third. Which is the newest um,
1: one. I got to taste the yeah, few so beers that were made with Astra. It, it seems like a really interesting um, characterful hop.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought the Northern Brewer, which is a, a, a very traditional English hop, um, and it, you know, it's got a little bit more of that woody, um, you know, uh, stalky character. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas Melba um, it, it is very fruity. Right and um, fresh and vibrant. Mm. And then interestingly, they uh, dry hop with uh, Styrian Goldings and Cascade to get a little bit more. Uh, so, so a lot of fresh hops on on the nose for it this so year. To, to
1: drinkability now. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But interesting that yeah, upping the the BUs to to the, the 60 mark, obviously, perhaps to give it a bit more hop character over those you know last couple of years of cellaring before you before you crack them
0: yeah I, well i I think and I think it's just got a little bit to do with learning how to sell a beer um you know and, and how to make a beer that's uh, designed for aging and uh you know it shows that even after what one hundred and fifty four years one hundred and fifty three years um they're still learning um but you know they, they yeah but it, it was a really nice day actually the one thing just going back to the um design of the uh, bar prof um it, it's something I've been meaning to talk about a little bit uh, is the the, the white tiles that seem to have become a standard feature of craft beer bars um, do you know the ones I'm talking about i think they're sometimes called new york subway tiles they're the white rectangular tiles and you see them behind the bar or you behind the taps at a lot of the oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yep um, and, and i think wolf for the willow or, uh, yeah wolf for the willows has it bad there um, bad shepherd yeah, sorry, yeah, bad shepherd sorry Bad shepherd has yes. it says um and I know Stone and Wood's got it at um their brewery bar and I think it was Stonewood in the first place. Bolter has it. Um and, and they seem to be the tiles and, and I, I I I think, you know, in thirty or forty years time when you know we're old men, um, sort of talking about the good old days, uh when we're down the pub having a uh, you know, seven of uh you know, whatever we're drinking uh in, in those days. You, you you know, our grandkids are gonna be able to date the pubs that they're drinking in by these white tiles. So these white tiles are almost going to be like... Um,
1: Old-growth forest rings,
0: you know, tree rings. And, you know. Well, you, you know the old sort of, sort of inner-city pubs um, that have those sort of beigey uh, tiles, you know, on, on the outside and on the inside, and it goes back to the days when they just used to hose out the... Yeah, the uh, stand-up urinal. Yeah. Yeah, 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 <laughs> the, <laughs> the stand-up urinal. No need
1: to leave the bar to go for a wee tiles. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I think they, these are going to sort of date it very much to... You know, like orange and browns due to the 1970s. These white t- tiles are going to be very much. Um, and if, funnily enough, they remind me of the, uh, my parents built a brand new house back in the early 80s. Oh, you no, know, back in the mid-70s. And uh, our shower tiles were those white tiles. So they say yeah, everything makes a comeback, Prof, there you go. sooner or later. That's um, it. Um, but, hey, have, but have you noticed that, listeners and uh, Prof, have you uh, seen those as being the tiles de jour? Yeah, I can I can
1: picture it now popping up in my Facebook feed and such. So now that you've met, I hadn't really sort of taken much notice of it before because I guess I'm you know the eyesight's fading a little bit, so I tend to be squinting to look at you know what's what's written what's scrawled above the tap in uh, <laughs> in whiteboard marker to to work out what I'm trying to order. And I kind of look straight <laughs> through the tiles there.
0: <laughs> so yes, those in filament bulbs or filament bulbs are probably a little bit passe there. So uh, 2012, 2013.
1: I, I, guess. I
0: remember 2012. Anyway. Uh, but and, keep keeping the Coopers, moving on, keeping the Coopers theme going, and it wasn't uh, part of the initial plan, but I was having a bit of a chat over lunch about the new brew art. Have you seen the brew art, Prof? I have seen the brew art.
1: Is, is it, kind of a, is it a, a bit more, uh, it, it's taking the Coopers kit and kilo kind of concept of home brewing um, up a, a, to an automated level? Is that, is Look, that putting too fine a it point is.
0: on it? No, no, not not too fine a point. So it's a little bit. I mean, it's been described as the Nespresso of beer. Um, it's a little bit more um, like the thermomix. Those thermomix. Um, it's a, much more like the thermomix in that there is a bit of um, ability to to really tweak it, whereas a Nespresso you just put the tab in. And on one level you can just do that, but um, having had a you know long chat at I them, and I, I got to be hands on and sort of do it. So. You, you, you buy a kit um, and you can order a kit. You can do a, order a Pilsner kit. You can order a Belgian um, lager kit. You can order a Cooper's Vintage Ale kit. Um, you can do a Russian Imperial Stout kit. Um, and it comes with these uh, foil bags of uh, malt and hops, of uh, malt powder and hops. Um, and so obviously a high-gravity beer is going to have more of these packets and a lower-gravity beer is going to have fewer of them. You put it in this... 10-litre, the, the beer droid, which is the component one, um, and you add the water um, and it, it, you turn it on. You've got an, a, a smartphone app so you can set your fermentation profiles, your, your, your temperatures. It's got a compressor so it keeps the uh, fermenting beer at exactly the temperature you want it at. Um, they've got a proprietary technology that they couldn't tell me too much about um, that tells you when fermentation is finished. Um, so it's not monitoring yeast action and it's not monitoring the um, original and uh, terminal gravities. There, There is something else that they've pioneered or worked out a way to ter- tell when fermentation is finished. You get a text to your smartphone um, and then you can either bottle it the, the way you, you you do or you can keg it into... Uh, and it, it, it's interesting the way that the system goes, Prof, because it's so you've got the brewery which is one Um, and then you've got the keg system that's a little bit like tap king um, is is the second one so you can buy the tap king or sorry i won't call it tap king because it's the beer flow system Um, but you can buy the kegging system um, and you rack it off into the these little um, five liter kegs so you get two kegs um, from the from the one brew Um, and they come with the have you ever seen the um those disposable kegs, the... Echo kegs. Echo kegs um, that have the foil bladder inside that's like a wine bag, like yeah. a, like the old goon bag. And so you, you, you fill that, um, and then when you put it into... The, and and you, you condition it there, so it still needs to go through the keg conditioning process where you put a little bit more yeast um, and some priming sugar, and you seal it um, for you know uh, a week or two. Um, and then you put it into your uh, beer flow system, um, and it injects oxygen or air into the uh, keg outside the foil, so it keeps it completely separate from the oxygen um, and essentially compresses, the, the pressure compresses the bag as it comes out um, and pours a beautiful beer, um, and it chills it to whatever temperature it goes down, as low as three or four degrees, I believe, um, and uh, from an ambient of over 30. Um, so, uh, yeah, so so between the two, um, you have uh, – it, it seems to be ticking quite a few boxes. You can home brew with a very temperature-controlled – you've got a home tapping system. And they've spent a lot of money in the way that the handle feels um, and, and, and the way that it pours. And it's there's a lot of thought pain gone into it. Um, and my first impressions when I heard about it and I read this and I thought that that's all it was, that it was a proprietary system that just did that, because you're looking at about 800 bucks for the um, beer droid, which is the brewing system, and you're looking at about another $600 um, for the tap system um, – I thought, gee, you know, are people really going to do that? Um, and I think that they're working with Harvey Norman, and Harvey Norman has spoken about how much people are spending on home coffee machines. And I wasn't convinced. But the thing that really showed me that this has a, has a potential is that um, it is hackable. So you don't just have to buy the Coopers uh, kit um, ingredient kits to, to mix up. You could even do brew in a bag um, on your, you know, get a 15-litre pot on the stove, um, do an all-grain beer, and then put it in the Droid to ferment um, and take much more control. They're going to come up with um, recipe charts and recipe kits. So, you know, for example, if you're making a Belgian-style lager, um, you have six malt hop kits. um, And when you try that, if you decide that you want to have a slightly hoppier beer, You can buy a slightly hoppier malt kit that will give you a, like, increase your IBUs. Um, There is, they don't, um, they haven't actually played around with it themselves yet, but they could see no reason why you couldn't dry hop in the beer droid to add a little bit more hop flavour. They've already, even though it's not on sale yet, they've just shown the videos. They've had, you know, their uh, database of more than 100,000 homebrewers ask them, well, you know, can we, do a, a, a hop gun, um, which is essentially the um, equivalent of a Randall, um, where they can put fresh cones in and keg it through uh, a, a tube of fresh cones. And they're already working to come up with that sort of thing. So, the, whilst on one hand, it can be as simple as a Cooper's um, you know, keg and kilo uh, brewing system that you buy from the, the, the supermarket and put in the old, one of the old plastic tubs. You can do it as simply as that, but you really can tweak it. Um, And also looking at the kegging system, I can't see, and the the, the brewers or the the designers um, could give me absolutely no reason why you couldn't take the five-litre keg um, down to your local uh, tap house or your local bottle that does growler refills and fill with whatever commercial beer you wanted. Um, Or if you're an enthusiastic home brewer, um, just buy the um, kegging system um, for a a very simple way of, you know, without doing a full kegerator, um, just doing, uh, you know, five litre kegs that are well cared for and and, and serve very well. So there seems to be uh, quite a degree of hackability about it and the ingenuity of brewers um, and homebrewers is really going to set the limits um, for something that takes a lot of the complexity out of potentially out of uh, being really serious in homebrewing, but still gives you quite an ability to dial in um, your own specifications and you know really experiment with the process.
1: Yeah, and there's certainly been a lot of interest on our Facebook page uh, for the article that you posted, with the with some really good pictures there of sort of how it all works. So
0: time will tell. Yeah, time will tell, and you know, a couple of the stumbling blocks for me. The, the two big questions are, you know, fourteen hundred dollars for the unit um, is pretty expensive, but we've already you know seen coffee machines take off. You know, those those fairly deluxe coffee machines, um, and unlike coffee machines, this seems to be pretty much failsafe. You know, you you even with some of the you know fifteen hundred dollar coffee machines, you still need to have a bit of a clue, and there's a lot of cleaning and a lot of fiddling about. This seems very easy to clean, very easy to maintain. When you buy your um, bag of you know, foil bladders for the for the kegs, you get new lines for the tap, so you're not going to get, you know, you don't have to worry about line cleaning, you don't have to worry about all of those sorts of things. The cleaning is very, very simple. Um, and depending on what beers you want to make, the um, kit that's got all of the malts uh, for 10 litres of beer is going to cost anywhere between about 28 and $40, depending on... Uh, the, the amount of ingredients. So $28 for 10 litres of pretty good beer. I managed to try a lager and a, an American pale ale, and you know, Prof, you certainly couldn't fault um, the, the beers. Um, they were they were as good as uh, you know, some of the, the uh, small breweries going around, and uh, you know, as good a home brew as a lot of home brewers um, I've tried. So you, you're certainly able to to do it, but whether people are willing to pay the uh 800 or 1400 dollars for the for the pair and secondly they do take up a bit of space um it's they're designed to sit on a kitchen bench so they they're quite elegant that which is where the brew art comes from so the tap system particularly is designed to sit you know in a home bar or a home entertainment area um and it would certainly not look out of place there but whether or not in another space hungry appliance um yeah you know, is going to find its way into the kitchen. Only time will tell. But uh, look, I reckon they, they've really thought through a lot of stuff, Prof, and uh, I was pretty bullish about the Tap King, and the Tap King just got to the stage where it just wasn't worth, you know, the the, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, as uh, our producer Lockie likes to say. Um, and once that happened, there was absolutely nothing else you could do with it um, than, you know, buy the line beers. This has a lot of flexibility. it. Yeah, so look, it'll be very interesting to see, but it's certainly um, you know a, a very interesting play from from Coopers, and uh they've invested uh, a lot of time. It's been you know developed about eight years, and I got to go down in the um, cellar room where they had I think about ten set up where they were sort of trialing a whole lot of different batches, and a lot of the brewers had had their their uh, their, their goes, and then on the back wall they had about 15 different prototypes. So it looked like, you know, in the first episode of... the the original first episode of Star Wars Prof, something that um, you and I would uh, go back to, and uh, the sand people had that big truck filled with droids um, and, and all sorts of different shaped, you know, versions of droids. It looked a little bit like that. They're all... Uh, you know prototypes that were in in half array um, sitting there. So there, there's been a lot of thought, a lot of drawing boards, a lot of going back to the drawing board. Um, it hasn't just been an overnight thing where they're jumping on the latest trend. So uh, there's been a lot of thought going to it. Yeah, no, no, look, I, I uh, have quite uh, you know, quite a high degree of confidence that this is going to find a place. So um, and they are going to actually, Prof, they're going to send me a test unit. So when you're up for the craft brewers conference we might be able to uh do a instructional video matt and pete uh do a bit of brewing
1: let's see how that goes
0: <laughs> otherwise i'll just make one and uh uh if i know you're coming i'll bake you a cake
1: done so
0: yeah um Prof, I mean, have you got any, what, what's your thoughts on home? Have you done much homebrew yourself, Prof? Yeah, I did in the early days and, uh, yeah,
1: time and passion and all that sort of stuff, and I realised fairly quickly that there were a lot of other people out there making much better beers than I was ever going to be able to make uh, on my budget and my equipment. The thing that I guess concerns me about this is that it's quite a bit more expensive than a stepping up from a Cooper's homebrew kit that you can buy in your Woolies or your Coles or wherever. And yet it's probably not far enough away uh, from, you know, why wouldn't I get a, a Browmeister or a Grainfather or um, if I, you know. So it, I, I think I don't know whether it's trying to attract, be attracted to the the Cooper's home brewer at the moment with the, you know, the, the standard kind of 30 or 23 litre barrel. Uh, yep. Or are we trying to, you know, make it an entry-level uh, homebrew kit for somebody who might, you know, step up to something a bit more all-grain and professional? It'd be interesting to see.
0: It will be interesting yeah. to see. Coopers is pretty attuned to their um, their, their market, and I, I think one of the things that they've really struggled with, they, you know, rebranded uh, homebrew a couple of years ago to DIY beer. Um, just trying to you know, we we talk a lot prof about perception um, and homebrew does have a little bit of a perception problem because yeah, everyone's had a mate that's got into homebrew and made dreadful stuff or they've had a you know an, an old uncle who is just a homebrew bore um, and so there there is that perception of it, and then there's also the guys who um, really get into all grain, you know, again, like our producer, Lockie and a, a bunch of his mates, and, you know, get into all grain, get very serious, and it becomes a like a, a real all-consuming all, in, all consuming hobby for them. I think this is for people that want to have a little bit more control over what they're doing, um, are a little bit more cashed up. They're not just trying to get the 25-cent stubby, um, but they also don't want to get right into the... Um, Grainfather or the, the Browmeister um, systems, um, and and also don't have the uh, the, the the cash of a, a Williams Warn system as well, which are you know they're the seven and a half thousand dollar systems that uh, you've got one one brew and it sits there um, until you drink it and then you can make the next one, and you know, they seem to be doing quite well, so yeah and, and it's. Yeah, it, it also is a, a nice fit with the Cooper's Homebrew. So anyway, yeah, Prof, I, I, I think that's a really good um, point. And they were all concerns that I had. Um, it's hard not to be caught up in the enthusiasm of the people that made it because you throw these questions at them and they were very forthcoming um, and quite willing to sort of answer all of those questions. So, uh, yeah, um, but we, we, we might get them on – Uh, and have a little bit of a chat. So, listeners, if you've got questions that you want asked um, uh, about the BrewArt system, uh, shoot them through and we'll uh, put them to the the Cooper's Brewery team, BrewArt team. Uh, Now, Prof, uh, have we got... Well, uh, today we're talking to Tina Panoutsis, who is the Head of Sensory Evaluation at CUB.
1: We certainly are, and um, I've had the... The uh, privilege and the pleasure of, uh, of being on a couple of panels with Tina during beer, Australian International Beer Awards judging, and just what you can learn uh, from somebody whose whose job basically is to you know identify and then you know turn flavours into words, and to also have that technical um, back end knowledge of uh, you know causes and cures and. And that sort of thing Uh, I think that um, that this interview will be of great interest to uh, brewers um, and but also to um, just the the drinkers who who listen uh, to perhaps better identify where their strengths and weaknesses are in in tasting and evaluating beer and you know it doesn't need to be a job it doesn't need to be a science it doesn't need to be a chore but I, I think some of the things that Tina will Identify for us will be of great use to uh, many of our listeners. One of the more, and, and this is in no way um, sort of putting down the or, or devaluing uh, any of the other guests that we've had on, but I, this is for me one of one of the most enlightening and, and interesting uh, guests that we've spoken to.
0: Yeah, and, and I've known of and known Tina for quite a few years, and have always chatted. Uh, and Great resource to, to go to when you want to talk about uh, tasting. But it is a fascinating, and it's increasingly one of the things that I've found that's fascinating um, in, in my tastings: how different people taste different things from exactly the same thing under the same conditions. So, um, anyway, professor let's, let's get on and uh, have a little bit of a chat with Tina, and we can uh, discuss what she said after the chat.
2: Thanks, guys. Good to be here. I suppose in virtual space.
0: Yeah, well, it's, uh, everything we do is virtually. Um, so so <laughs> that's it. But it's great to have you along. Now, Tina, I, I guess you know. We spend a lot of our time talking to brewers and uh, people on that side, or sometimes marketers um, as well. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your role is uh, within CUB.
2: Sure. Um, At the moment I'm currently heading up the sensory function within CUB and have done that for about five years now, I think it is. Um, And predominantly it's overseeing and, and managing the sensory um, function on both technical and non-technical perspectives. So we're look at, looking after our trained panels, getting them trained up, and being able, to be capable enough to sort of assess beer quality, beer consistency, and making you know good sound um, tasters out of them, and you know being able to sort of monitor our beer quality from that perspective. And also doing a lot of work with at the moment. With um, within the consumer preference side of things. So that's what anything tasting sensory, that's me.
0: So h- how did you come to that job?
2: <laughs> More than two decades ago, and I won't specify how long, because um, <laughs> I did start when I was 16. Um, I kicked off in the quality lab down at the Carlton Technical Centre and um, spent a few years there before I decide, thought I'd decide whether or not I'd go into teaching because I had a teaching, a graduate teaching qualification, and I thought, well, I'll see what if I'm going to be a lab rat or not, or go into teaching. And I decided to stay in the industry because at the time, I was asked, I was approached to develop or formally develop our sensory function way back then, and just kick that off, and that sort of spurred on an interest in learning, education, development, and stuff. So, I think most of my time within CUB has been around. The education piece of uh, brewing beer and sensory and it's been you know a really bit of a a, an interesting ride because i even spent a bit of time in hr which was interesting and um yeah so that's that's where i kicked off uh, my career within cub one of the sort of
0: big questions I, I guess is you know, how how do you taste beer um, to fulfil your role and uh, make sure that it's quality and it's consistent and it's within spec what's the process that you go through um, to, to taste the beer?
2: Um, irrespective of um, where you would be doing this I think any if you attempt to sort of taste beer and assess it for its quality parameters if you didn't have any formal training or formal education as far as Uh, recognition, flavours, assessment of, you know, quality, true to type characteristics and go through a whole process or a program where, you know, you're exposed to different flavours, concentrations and styles, it's hard to sort of make a a capable assessment on the flavour in the, you know, as a final product and even throughout the whole process. So part of that um, assessment has to come with a lot of training. So any You you can jump into it and self-educate, which is great. Um, The best way to do it is to really have an interest in it and also to take part in a formal program where you have samples doctored or, you know, uh, dosed with capsules or any other means of um, dosing up uh, beer to highlight and pronounce certain flavours, whether they're positive or negative. And that sort of builds your memory bank on what characteristics should and shouldn't be there in beer. And then you can go off and explore... Things like beer styles and what characteristics fit with certain styles, and what um, you know, what could indicate issues throughout the process or the raw materials. And Tina, just
1: so that uh, I'm sure there are probably uh, not too many of our listeners out there expecting that uh, you know a sensory panel. Uh, is basically, you know, five or six people sitting around the corner table in the pub, um, drinking beer and talking about it. But perhaps if you, if you, I guess, paint the picture, tell us how a sensory panel is kind of set out. Um, what sort of time it takes? You know, is it a morning? Is it a, you know, an hour? Is it, um, you know, how does it work?
2: I'll give you an example of what we run in house at the moment and it's sort of similar to what we used to do um, before the Sab Miller takeover and like I said beforehand, the the process is pretty similar so what we currently carry out is we've got a a range of flavours that have been identified as key attributes um, either uh, to develop a profile for a beer or to highlight or and identify faults that may occur in, in beer. So we've got a list of attributes and flavour characteristics and our tasters are exposed to on a weekly basis at about 10:15 every Monday morning here at Southbank um, and it yet generally uh, runs weekly at a, our brewing... Uh, sites as well because the program that we deliver is consistent across all of our sites and consistent across our global breweries as well. So we're all doing the same training, all exposed to the same flavours and format of how we um, undertake that training. So um, group of tasters come in, we generally have you know, anywhere uh, between 10 and 15 generally in most of our sites undertaking the training on a weekly basis and they're exposed to at any one session uh, 10 different flavours from the flight of 40 odd um, attributes where they'll recognise that'll be dosed into a beer and you have a a reference sample so you can go back and see what an undoctored sample of that beer is like and compare it to um, a beer that has had uh, a capsule added to it to pronounce a certain flavour. So it'll be a process of discussing it, understanding where this flavour may have arisen from and also what are the um, possibilities of how it presents itself in the beer. And then that starts to build your recognition of that flavour and we often sort of also put a, dose, a particular flavour in different beer styles so it gives you a broad spectrum of that flavour and how it can present itself in different um, beers so that you don't just, for example, diacetyl smells different in a lager than it would in a ale or it would in a stout. And then we also go through a process of picking one flavor a week and scaling that. So presenting it to tasters in different concentrations. So you first learn how to recognize the flavor and then you learn to recognize it in different concentrations. So slightly there, a little bit more there and smack in the face there. Um, and that's how we sort of develop our cases our capability of recognising and also identifying um, attributes that might present themselves in beer in different concentrations. And then we also do um, beer style education, and you know, every brewery has a range of different beer styles in their portfolio, and we've got a number of them ourselves. So we look at everything from lagers through to stouts and identify characteristics because the main purpose of what we're doing. Is to ensure that our consumers um, you know purchase quality consistent products time and time again so that the what goes out of the brewery doors is is essentially a, a highly a high quality product and so our specific purpose is to make sure that what we bottle and package is a one um, so we're pretty much focused on the quality and as part of building the repertoire of our taster's capability, we also include different styles so that it rounds out their education and their ability to pick up, you know, any beer and sort of make a a valuable assessment on it. Does that sort of...
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I was just uh, thinking through that when you take such a forensic approach to, to, to beer tasting, as somebody who loves beer, do you find it very hard to go to a pub and not... And, and just simply enjoy a, a beer that is pretty good without sort of starting to dissect it and go looking for things that you are
2: trained to, to to look at? You know, Kate, that's really interesting because instinctively I'll pick up a glass and smell it. And my husband's been heard to say, would you just drink the bloody thing? And, you know, so you just instinctively do it. You pick it up and you smell it. And I often don't know realise that I do it, but then someone wouldn't question me if I did that with a glass of wine. So... I think it's, you, you really appreciate everything that you put into your mouth and you, you, know, you smell it and everything. So I think it's an instinctive action and it, is, it can be quite forensic but you can switch off from it depending on the occasion and, and the purpose of why you're, you're drinking something. So ultimately I want to make sure that what I'm, I've purchased or what I'm about to drink I'm going to enjoy and part of that is definitely smelling it. I don't always look for faults. I assume sometimes that you know what's sold over the bar or in someone's home or anything like that is going to be a quality product because I know everyone's invested in, in any beer that they produce is going to be of a quality standard. So the anticipation initially on a social occasion is that I want to smell it because I want to enjoy it.
0: But I guess at the same time, you know, the average punter who goes in and maybe their beer's got a little bit of butterscotch or some, you know, just some stewed corn or something along those lines in, in a small amount, they will just see that as a feature of the beer. Um, do you, you know, if you raise that to your nose and think, oh, that that shouldn't be in this style, I've completely lost my enjoyment of this beer. Do, do you have a different level of, of of enjoyment or appreciation for beer for those reasons?
2: Yeah, you can sometimes. It is sometimes you, it can be a little bit more critical. Um, try not to be a lot of times in as far as uh, there is diversity in styles, and there you know there are a lot of styles that are being explored at the moment, and you've got a range of different flavors that can present themselves, you know, more more substantially in some beers than others. And but sometimes it does. As long as it if there's a little bit of you know butterscotch or a little bit of corn in it or something like that, and it's really not meant to be there, I'm not exactly going to tip it down the sink if. If I think it sort of overall balances the beer, if it really doesn't sit well with the beer, then definitely I I can be quite critical or just choose not to enjoy it.
0: I I do have a friend who's a wine judge, um, but he he loves beer and he just can't drink anything with Britannomyces in it because that is just such a critical fault in most wines that it it only just comes to him as purely faecal.
2: Yeah, look, that, that could be said for anything really though because if it's something, it's a characteristic that you're um, not enamoured with, you not, you really get put off by it, then irrespective of where it presents itself, you, you're not going to enjoy it. Whereas, um, you know, it could be something that doesn't quite fit the style but it it's not a bad thing in the whole scheme of um, the profile. I think it's personal preference a lot of times.
1: Tina, we were lucky enough to spend a little bit of quality time together over uh, an ale at, uh, at the Gabs Festival at Melbourne this year. When you're um, particularly say involved with say the new um, uh, Fat Yak, the Wild Yak, um, is it really interesting for you? Do you kind of switch out of um, you know I'm just a punter at a at a beer festival to try to I guess overhear what other people are saying about a beer that that is new in the market?
2: Definitely. Definitely, I think you, you gain. I think people can be. It's an industry that I find really interesting in as far as uh, the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing that's seen across, whether you're a small home brewer through to a commercial brewer. We're, we're all quite invested in what we brew and, and we're quite passionate about making sure that people enjoy the fruits of our labour, for example. So I think sometimes people can be guarded about what they honestly think and say about a beer. Um, Generally, it's great to get, you know, unedited uh, feedback about a particular beer. So, yeah, a lot of times last year at Gab's, I actually approached a few ladies that were drinking sours and sort of just asked them for a bit of a chat and stuff, and they thought I was uh, a marketing researcher. So, I late after a bit of conversation, I told them where I was from, obviously, just to not hide anything, but it was really great to get their... Um, honest feedback about different beers and, and I think it's, it adds value. You've got to take the constructive criticism along with the positive praise um, equally as importantly just to make sure that your the outcome of what you're producing is going to meet the needs of your consumer.
0: You did talk about you instinctively raise the glass to your nose so you can smell it and that's something that I do as well and I also often at most of my tastings Put beer into a wine glass or a wine tasting glass because there is just something that we are conditioned to in that we're not conditioned to pick up a standard pot or schooner glass and stick our nose in it because it's much more of a drinking vessel whereas wine glasses we are conditioned um, to treat the liquid in them a certain way um, how important you know is things like glassware and those customs in our enjoyment and appreciation of beer?
2: I think they're huge, Matt, mainly because um, once you've experienced, uh, whether it's wine, beer or even cider, in the right vessel and you compare it to something that might um, you know, be either out of a bottle or out of a, a schooner glass, there is, once you sort of identify the difference that you get out of the aroma and even the taste, it does leave you with a lasting impression and... Generally, a better enjoyment of it. Granted, you can't have, you know, a, a nice, you know, uh, styled glass for every occasion. You've got to sometimes be satisfied with, with a spoon of glass, and that serves the occasion at certain times. But um, once you do, you really want to get the most out of uh, the aroma and the taste and the overall flavour the right glass speaks volumes in enhancing and, and promoting the flavours that the brewer has intended to be in that beer. I, I can't speak highly enough about the glass, glassware being a critical component in the service and enjoyment of beer. Um, I think, you know, if I, if I, when I do have a choice I won't drink out of a bottle, not to say that I, I never have or never will, but um, I think, you know, the glass for my enjoyment, it's... Definitely, if I can have something that's stemmed and not fill it to the top, I definitely would do that. If I'm at the footy, the plastic cup serves a purpose.
0: And again, that's where I always try and encourage people to drink from glasses where practical, but it's not something that you'd like. you... know If you're chasing sausages around a barbecue, having your stemmed Spiegelau isn't, or your wine glass isn't necessarily the the best vessel or at the football. Now... One of the things that, when uh, taste, whenever you go to a beer tasting and there's someone there sort of talking about it, they always quote that figure of you know 70 to 80 percent of what we perceive as flavour does come from the sense of smell. Is that an accurate description of the mechanics of flavour and and how aroma plays um, factors into that?
2: Yeah, it is for a number of reasons because uh, one being the the attributes or the sensorial attributes that you get out of beer. Um, If you break it down into everyone or most people will have seen the beer flavour well and and two thirds of that um, captures the aromas that are present or can be present in beer flavour and when I say flavour I I refer to the aroma and the taste Um, and then a third of that is captured by the the taste itself. The other component is the the physical um, process of appreciating beer, wine, whatever it is um, is the olfactory senses a lot of it's wrapped up in your aroma and there are different techniques that um, we use in house to really focus either on the aroma, the taste, the bitterness, the um, the, uh, the palate sort of I can't think of the word now the trigeminal senses where you pick up the mouthfeel so it's a textural it's a physical attribute rather than um, a taste or an aroma. Uh, so you have different techniques which a lot of it fix on or focus back on the the ability to smell something and what is exposed in the beer flavour through the smell. So things that you can sometimes pick up the aroma, you can also taste them because once you smell it and it goes down your olfactory senses, it warms up and then you can also have like a a, a retronasal uh, characteristic comes through once you smelt it, tasted it, swallowed it and you breathe out you can always get that referred aroma so um, things like you can't smell bitterness you can smell hoppy but bitterness is one of the characteristics that is purely taste you can smell esters and you can also taste esters and then you also have that referred ester character so the fruity floral notes through fermentation you get a lot of those characteristics both on aroma and taste um, if you've got a cold everyone knows you can't taste much at all so blocking out the aroma um, you, it, you tend to sort of uh, diminish the amount of character that you get out of tasting any beer or anything like that um, but there are a lot of flavors and a lot of them are, are blended together so you can sometimes isolate them sometimes there's no purpose or reason to isolate particular flavors on the flavor wheel other than identifying um, faults but sometimes it's a synergistic effect of different aromas that play a big part in the overall aroma and taste. So I think you know that 80, 20% rule might be a bit high, but definitely the aroma is the big, one of the biggest parts of um, the flavor perception.
0: Following on from that, when I'm doing tastings, I'll often explain to people that we have a sense of taste and we have a sense of smell and we have a sense of sight but we have a perception of flavour and you were talking about the synergistic um, element and when you talk about a perception of flavour, it brings in all of those things, but then so many other things, Uh, you know, for example, memories and smell being so uh, intimately involved with our memories and being such a powerful trigger for memories. Um, can Can two different people experience exactly the same thing from a from a glass or is our perception of flavour automatically going to be slightly different because of all of our com- combination of senses and perceptions?
2: A bit of both. Um, I think if I said to you, if I said to both of you, uh, describe basil to me, um, basil is, the name suggests the aroma. Now, whether or not you experience it in Thai food and... Um, Someone else experienced that in Italian food, basil is basil, and I know there are different varieties of the herb as well, so you would use different ones, but just as a general uh, description, your memories do make up a lot of the perception of those flavours. Sometimes they're consistent, sometimes they're not, but a lot of the times it depends upon the use of that memory to elicit the language to then be able to describe uh, what a particular flavour is like, and that's where you get The memory is probably that isolated um, experience, the the language is the general and then the description sort of is where we all sort of start to talk the same language. Um, So you need to form those memories or those connections to particular flavours and then how you describe them is where you get the language and the communication happening and I think that's where we really focus on in our training, we focus on identifying flavour characteristics and being specific about how we name them and how we describe them so that we're all talking the same language and then when you use it to describe a particular profile of a beer for say consumer facing um, then you use a a generalist sort of approach to how you would describe that but identifying it is really that uh, personal um, individual experience of how you make that connection.
1: Following on from that Tina um for my own personal um, t- uh, palate, um, VDK, diacetyl, um, that butterscotch kind of aroma, I'm very sensitive to, to the point, you know, like a, mm-hmm. um, you know, can smell a, a drop in a swimming pool. Uh, other yeah. people are completely, you know, like um, blind to it. Is it? Yep. Uh, and, and my, um, that's, I guess, my kryptonite. The one I'm blind to is, is that sulfur. Sulfur's got to be really, really prominent before I'll kind of um, be able to to assess it. Is that something that is just genetically that's me and the next person that we're all kind of, you know, blind to something or, or we appreciate things differently or is that um, uh, something that I can um, train myself to uh, to learn, I guess?
2: Um, I'll answer it in sort of a progression um, way. It, there are, people are anosmic. That blind is referred to... Um, blind to a particular character is referred to being anosmic. So you're not you genetically you're just not wired that way to pick up a particular characteristic so no matter how much uh, i know people on our panel uh, or in the past have been blind to diacetyl so they just can't pick it up but they've learned to sort of develop other connections to whether diacetyl can have a perceived uh, sweetness or mellowness to the palate Mm -hmm. So whether or not they they can't pick up the butterscotch character, but they can pick up other things that gives them the cue to say, okay, well, I know that that's not true to type. Um, I'll investigate that in my own mind and recall some of the, that training that I've had to say, it's not vanilla, it's not sweet, it's not malty, it's more like diacetyl. But the I, the recognition that you're anomic to some flavours is just as important and just as crucial as being really sensitive to something and being a you know you're a gun taster in my eyes whether you recognize flavors that you can or can't taste and being able to use that to your advantage so when we have you know if if we were using if we're doing an assessment on diacetyl someone that uh, if I know that there are panelists on the panel or tasters on the panel that can't pick up diacetyl, the recognition that they can or can't is just as important as those that can. So I think, you know, in days gone by I know that my early days with Sensory, you you listen to the head brewer and what generally was then he, he what he would say would be, you know, gospel. So if he picked up diacetyl, well there was diacetyl in there. Or if it wasn't then, you know, vice versa. But I think the recognition in being able to know what your strengths are and what you're, what you're blind to is just as important as knowing a, a range of other flavours and being capable as a taster um, and learning how to identify or just call out and say look if you picked up diacetyl I'll take that because I know that I can't um, but there are ways in which you can you can train your palate almost to pick up the other cues that will help you identify faults and that's generally where it comes down to you know, making sure that you you either are or aren't capable of identifying some flavours.
0: A, a, a taste is born that way, or is it something that we can learn? And if you know, as in in people who are listening to this podcast will be interested, beer people, how do they improve their palate?
2: Knowing what's in there, you can you can. There are some flavours that you can uh, develop because it depends on. And this is where the example that I gave you beforehand, where we uh, pull out one flavour and we dose it in different concentrations, that's where we look at people's threshold ability. So how sensitive, how low does a concentration have to be before they can pick it up? And we look at their ability to scale something or to rank something in order of uh, least present to most present of a particular flavour. So if they're, if they're picking up that flavour in the higher concentrations, that means their threshold is um, quite Lows to that particular flavor so they they need a a high dose before they can pick it up if they are picking it up that means a bit of training will help bring that back so that they can learn to pick up the characteristics of the flavor in lower concentrations if you can't pick it up at the highest concentration well I'm sorry it'll never happen Um, you won't be able to pick up that flavor so having the awareness and the familiarity with where your your threshold or your intensity ability to pick up a certain intensity determines whether or not you could have a, a practice run um, you can't you know the best way to train yourself is you know hopefully have the ability to, to have a kit or identify a flavor that's present in a beer and say all right that is and we'll pick on diacetyl for today that is diacetol it's dosed at three times threshold for example Let's dilute it by half and see if we can pick it up at one and a half and then keep diluting it to see where you can pick up that level. If you haven't got the ability of using or the, the, um, the option of using uh, standards and kits and stuff like that, then identify a beer that's naturally high in a particular characteristic or profile and then start to pull out and tease out, really investigate a little bit in a bit more detail about what you're picking out. Um, reading and describing flavors that you've never tasted is hard because you've actually it, it makes that connection in that memory it's like going back to basil you know if you've never smelt it in your life the only way you describe it is it's green it's green it's I,
0: I, I'm actually colorblind so I'm very okay with people <laughs> trying to describe things to me he's never uh, described no, basil as green though
2: no, it's usually purple <laughs> or brown <laughs> or you might I, I
0: have I have bought purple jumpers thinking they were navy blue in my time, but we won't. Oh, no. No, That's just going off off the topic. But anyway, yeah, so uh, uh, you've mentioned those flavour kits, and they have become available on the market um, for for people to buy. Are are, are they something that somebody who really wanted to develop their palette would find a good investment?
2: Yeah, definitely. I I think whether or not, whatever kits you use, you've got to have a starting point to sort of um, look at a... A range of flavors and even if it's you know you could pick out 10 basic flavors to look at and what it does is I help you identify characteristics and in most cases knowing what shouldn't be there is quite important because that's where you'll identify you know flavors that um, might be present in other styles but if you're brewing say a brewer sort of looking at producing a particular style and depending on the fermentation if you get feedback about you know different characteristics that may have alluded to the final profile being an issue with fermentation or m- raw materials or whatever you can start to pinpoint what those attributes how they make sense in your own mind and using standards is a really great way as a Starting point because that's where you you identify certain ways in which it makes sense in your mind to read you know um, a descriptor that might you know leathery has a a description of it can it can smell leathery so as beer ages it can develop a real leathery character Um, and it can smell like a brand new wallet to some people but it can smell like raw peanuts to others and I know that sounds quite obscure. Um but that's the way people make connections and unless you have uh a starting point like the kids and they're not selling anything here, but um No 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 no. it is a really great way to make um to set a baseline of your ability to pick up um flavours and um you know what shouldn't shouldn't be there, what's true to type.
0: It's interesting you were talking about leather and peanuts before because I understand that there are differences in the way that men and women taste. And, for example, men might get piney or some of those strong characters for hops, say, New Zealand hops, whereas women tend to identify that as cat's pee. Is that correct? or Are are there certain gender divides there?
2: Yeah, there are, and I think it does come back to the association that you make with that flavour. Paper, for example, one of the descriptors that... Uh, resonates with me if a beer is um, quite aged and it develops that what's commonly known as cardboard, you know, stale sort of wet newspaper character. If it's um, you know a beer that's over 12 months, old, it smells like lipstick, old lipstick to me. And it does resonate with some people. A couple of males on the panel get it. Now I don't want to ask, but um, they get <laughs> <laughs> it. I don't that. think
1: I can tell you what lipstick smells like. I mean, yeah, what and, look, and, like. that's, and, and that's and that's what
2: the association is, and that's where you you have to sort of explore particular flavours and look at like we've got our list of attributes, and with those are the standard descriptors that come through that have come through ASBC, you know, that, the formalisation of that lexicon, but then we've added other characteristics that resonate with the panel. So well
0: I'd imagine something like Vegemite for example which would be recognizable to most Australians if you're describing some of those yeast characters that come through from some beers as being vegemite would an American brewer know what that means Absolutely for example? Absolutely
2: correct. Absolutely correct and that's why it's important to make that connection but use the terminology and then be able to describe that in a generalist way so it's not so much you know, once you've made the connection with a the flavour, then you know what it is. You know, Lightstruck can smell like a, the first pub that you threw up in, for example. I don't know. <laughs> that's, you know, that's one of that's something that's come to the to the discussion in the past. But as long as you make that connection with a the flavour, then the way in which you describe it is um, broadened by your experience and and listening to other people. And I think I can't emphasise the importance of um, flavour education and, and be sensory in a group environment. You know, not everyone's right, but everyone's discussion is valuable in that, you know, you, you don't get dictated just because one person can pick it up in this way. It doesn't mean that just because you can't, then you, you're blind to it. It just means that you've got to find either another way of describing it, making a connection, and then um, locking it into memory and understanding that that's what makes, your, your association with that flavour resonates. So next time you pick it up, it'll conjure that memory. But you can describe it in the in a uh, uh, using the terminology that's consistent within the industry.
0: Prof, did you have anything before we?
1: Uh, yeah, because I know, I'm aware the that Tina's got to get back to um, to, yep. to her next tasting. <laughs> I know
2: it's not
1: I know it, I know it's not an exam, and this is going to sound like I'm sucking up to the teacher, but the Vegemite that's autolysis, isn't it, Miss?
2: Correct
0: yes thank you
1: teacher
0: although there are a range of beers like uh, um, one that I very strongly get uh, Vegemite from and I don't mean to call a beer out because I don't actually see it as a fault is the Grand Ridge uh, Moonshine are there there some styles of beer where that yeast uh, isn't a fault?
2: yeah correct and I think you your point before about Britannomyces there are you know is that that in in a balanced environment you know any characteristic like that can can sit well can sort of make up the profile of that beer and it doesn't mean and that's why I think it's important to recognize not only uh, flavors and a repertoire of you know characteristics that sit with those flavors but know where they're appro- when they're appropriate in different beer styles and different um, environments so and understanding that Diacetyl not always bad. Um, uh, you know, Brett's not always bad. Other flavours aren't always bad. It just depends on the the environment in which it's found and whether or not it sits within the overall profile of the beer. Um, there are a lot of examples where people will search for faults, um, but it's often part of the profile. And it's understanding what makes that beer um, well balanced that. It might sort of suit that that style and come at, come through as a balanced character.
0: Tina just before we let you go as a professional taster what beers do you knock off to? Um, given, bearing in mind that you work for CUB, but you know what, what, what's what um, characters of beers or what beers when you go home do you really look forward to, uh, to, to drinking?
2: It depends on the day, it depends on the food and it depends on the mood. Um, so I think I it's it's probably.
0: I have to say that sounds like exactly the same answer that I give it. <laughs> I know Prof gives whenever That's we're. Well, knowing Tina yeah. as well as
1: I do, if it's anywhere in the vicinity of Sam Force, it's it's whatever gets poured into your glass and um, and it's enjoyed <laughs> liberally, but, but responsibly.
2: Exactly. No, I think it's it's easier to. It's not easy, but it's just as. The same question about asking me what my favorite who my favorite child is, and it's not an easy question. I think all bees are good as long as they're made with passion, and I know every brewer that I know in the industry does that um, so you can't go wrong. I think the only issue on the consumer side of things is making sure that we educate our consumers to treat bee with respect and and look at best before dates and make sure that, you know, it doesn't sit in the back of a shed somewhere and then expect it to be tasting the same way as it should. So I think, you know, the emphasis is on making sure that whatever you drink, it's quality product and, and you enjoy it, whether it's, a you know, anything as light and as delicate as a carton dry right through to a Cascade Stout. How's that?
1: <laughs> oh, nicely done. Hey, listen, Tina, just before we actually really do finally let you go, can you just dispel a myth? for us the um the the concept of the the tongue flavor map has that been dispelled or is there still something to it because bitterness i still find go on sorry
2: throw that out
1: (laughs) yeah yeah
2: Yeah, you're about to say i'm sure bitterness is still perceived at the back of the palate
1: well or is it more that it's something that when it washes over the entire palate just becomes more apparent than say dipping the tip of your tongue in
2: yeah, that the whole um, tongue diagram was a massive generalization um, yeah. depending on your genetic makeup, your conditioning, you know you, the food that you eat and everything you can't you don't only isolate one particular taste or the four primary taste flavors and that's not including the fifth umami you don't
0: well, I was going to say that was that map was developed before mamami umami, umami yeah, was yeah, even definitely. yeah
2: yeah definitely I think it was back in the late eighteenth century early 19th century I think it was developed um, but they uh, you, you know the, the only truth to that that I still sort of uh, reinforce is that bitterness is generally picked up from about the mid palate through to the back down the throat sides of the cheeks and mainly because bitterness is a developed character so it can take a few seconds to kick in and generally once the beer has washed you right has washed over the palate um, it goes down to the throat, you, a few seconds later that bitterness starts to kick in and it is a compounding attribute. So the more the, the more big or the higher the bitterness, the more it saturates and it hangs around for a lot longer. Um, sweetness, sourness, saltiness, uh, that can pe- be picked up in different areas of the palate from the tongue to the sides of the cheeks, around your gums, roof of the mouth, down the palate, everywhere it just it comes back to again isolating that flavor and identifying where you pick it up in your palate um, bitterness again is one of those things that you can block off your olfactory senses hold your nose and really focus on the back of the palate and the tongue to identify how strong or how weak the bitterness is I mean there's a lot of this is another session on how how to taste and tasting techniques yeah. I think Yeah, it's
1: a whole it's yeah. a whole well. other episode
0: that an episode, I think, that we should lock in at some stage. So, Well, Tina Panutis, thank you very much. We know that you need to race off, so thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News, and we uh, hope to have a tasty beer with you very soon.
2: Pleasure. Thank you, and you're more than welcome. In the garden, what a garden.
0: Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer, No Mate, thank you for teeing that one up. That is, you know, um, you know, it, it, coming up to episode 100, you know, we, we I'm still constantly surprised at um, how good the you know, interviews are. You know, we, we were, we knew that that would be a good one, but just uh, having someone who's so passionate about the topic um, just made for what I thought was a fascinating interview.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, and so yeah, she'd been on my list for a while. It was just a matter of. Uh, of shoehorning her in at the earliest opportunity. And look, you know, i often describe Tina as, as having the most talented tongue in the uh, in the beer uh, palate, sorry, in the uh, in the beer business. And I think, you know, uh, leaves no doubt.
0: Well, mate, I've long said that you've got the most talented tonsils in the beer business, but you know, that's that might be bias on my part. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> But uh, yeah, actually, um, and Tina did, say, after the interview, I, I did ask her about the the, the question about um, aroma and memories and, and what they trigger, and Tina sent through a, a fascinating article that I'll post in the show notes, um, because uh, yeah, it, it is something that, as I said just before we spoke to Tina, more and more in my tastings, I talk about the... Um, you know, variability of flavours and that we don't all sense the same things and when people love to jump on and, you know, shit can other people's tastes, we all get different things and, uh, you know, I I always think it's funny when you see the, it tends to be the older school wine, you know, wine lecturers um, stand up and they tell you, you know, they they give you a list of eight or nine things they taste in, in, in the wine
1: Knowing that you, you can't just, disprove in, any of them.
0: Well, you can't disprove any of it, but when uh, sensory scientists have done tastings to see what people can, you know, when when they specifically add um, flavours and tincture, you know, um, elements to neutral liquids to see how many people uh, can identify, most even the best tasters are flat out identifying more than two or three. Um, and so when you get you know, like champagne experts who say, oh, yes, I," they've got 15% of the 2013 in this blend and, uh, you know, 75% of the, and then 10% of the current vintage. And you, yes. you just know that you're being lied to. I can read label notes too. Yeah, well, it, it, exactly. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, the takeaway for me is that, listeners, when you are at a lesson like that, and there are some spectacularly good tasters, you know, like I'm always in awe of, uh, you know, I've, I've seen people try and trick um, Brad Rogers by you know, pulling out, um, I think it was four or five years ago, somebody pulled out a six-year-old, six-year-old version of one of his Matilda Bay beers just to, that they'd had cellaring and uh, said, oh, you know, Brad, what do you think of this? And Brad straight away knew that it was one of his beers. And I sort of think, you know, that's pretty astounding because it's not, it's not the beer that it was when he brewed it, but he's able to identify it and there was no, uh, no tricking with it. There, there are a couple of people in the industry. Brennan Barris is another one. Um, Ian Watson's another one um, who you know, I'm in, in, in awe of. But then I know there are a lot of people that, as you said, have a good memory for bottle notes. Yep. Now, Prof, um, have you got a pot shot for us this week? We had, had a great response to uh, your pot shot last week. Yeah,
1: glad that was well received. As I look, they're not all going to be that sort of well thought through and, uh, and, and have their own sound effects and uh, – and soundtracks and all that sort of thing but that that was just a particular one that, that got to me this week is a i guess a fairly quick one i'm just going to have a crack at at everyone uh when i go into a pub and um, you know meeting up with friends or whatever it might be and say so you you're at the bar and you're chatting and you're socializing and you you know greeting meeting greeting and that sort of thing yeah, yeah mate what can i get you yeah no worries mate can i grab a yeah uh, you know number four whatever it might be and boom a pint arrives what is it when did the pint become the default uh, size, serving size. What have happened to sensible serving sizes? And, and, and I guess I go back to my very limited time. It was six or seven days in, in Cologne um, and even in in Paris where the standard is is a is a sang, you know, a 25 centilitre, so two 250 mil. Um, and you find, bang, you, you get the full enjoyment of the beer in that quantity. I don't know if I'm getting old, Matt, but I would like to at least have the choice of saying, yeah, can I have a small or medium, or large, a larger, regular, a larger, a, a pot, pint, schooner, whatever it might be. Just just have a think about it. That That's Prof's Pot Shop.
0: Mate, see, when you rant, we are almost invariably on the same page. It says something that I've been ranting about for a while, and uh, it was one of the, the things that triggered the beer tapas that I do because, you know, uh, food has become much more sharing size um, and, and smaller size, whereas beer has become more flavoursome, but you know, it has become the default... Um, you know pint serving and yeah you
1: know. and look I'm perhaps in a different demographic because my distance from good beer venues means that invariably I need to drive plus uh, invariably I'm, I'm either working or researching or um, you know it, they're in, in in some form of a professional capacity and you have a, a reputation to maintain and you need to stay nice and that sort of thing so I, I tend to want to enjoy you know one to maybe a third of you know small sizes, if, if you stick a pint in front of me, and I'm, that's pretty much me done. So you're not going to get any more cash out of me. Surely, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it's a, it's just a, we want to be seen to be generous, or this is better for our margins, or you know, in terms of um, wastage and that's overpouring and that sort of thing. I don't know. Um, but just just have a think about it.
0: But it's also, I mean, I actually find a pint a fairly antisocial. Um, Way of drinking beer for that reason is that yeah so you've you've got a great big serve, um, it it doesn't encourage you to try many across the range of the beers and so particularly I find it particularly odd in breweries that in, in venues that have got you know eight, twelve, twenty, 20, 20 taps, yeah, exactly. um, and, and yet they're serving it in the biggest possible volume, um, and in discouraging people from act, from from trialing. Yeah it. and look um, so whether
1: whether it's a, a crisp refreshing curl style golden ale what what, what have you lager or through to a you know a hoppy um pale i don't want to get to that bottom part where it's just kind of it's it's lost its temperature and 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 lost a bit of its character and likewise if it's a a dark ale an amber a stout or something that that volume just takes so much longer to to have the chill come off it when it's when it's in a pipe so maybe i'm just drinking it wrong
0: well, but see, just because you're odd, just because you're odd, just because you're old doesn't make you wrong, Prof. Um, and you know, and, and you grow up um, you're drinking. It just in, seems to me it seems ca- it
1: seems counterintuitive to to wanting people to uh, you know try. Our, you know, we we're very proud of our extensive list, or we wouldn't have curated it and, and had so many taps. But how about you know, I kind of just make you force you to to not work through our range, or you know,
0: anyway. Hmm. And volume aside, it's the those shaker pint glasses. Um, you know, are just horrid. Those heavy, you know, yeah. thick side. So they do nothing to enhance the beer. They do nothing. Um, you know, and they just feel horrible. You've just got this bucket of beer on the end of your arm. But anyway, uh, nicely done, Prof. Uh, fully agree. And uh, that was Prof's pot shot. Uh, now, cards and letters, music. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. And make it no iTunes reviews this week. Uh, listeners, don't forget that if you like what we do um, and you can be asked when you finish and get out of the car or get to work um, or get home at the end of a work workday, um, just log into iTunes and uh, give us a rating, good, bad or indifferent, um, help other people find us and also let us know what you think and uh, what we can do better. I think we've got a little bit better at... Um, not being so waffly, and uh, hopefully I'm getting better at sharing the mic. I'm I'm conscious to say, Prof, that I haven't, uh, because I I was talking about my experience yesterday, that um, that was me talking at you, but uh, hopefully I've been a little bit better at sharing the mic, listeners, Um, but that's certainly been feedback that we've got. Um, We did have, speaking of Prof's pot shots, um, Pia Poynton, Girl Plus Beer uh, tweeted yesterday, Pete's pot shot, um, this episode, great and very true. Just as bad to be a beer yob as a beer snob. Um, she sent us a nice little tweet of her listening to it.
1: Oh, I did. I, did um, like, I particularly like that because, you know, you see somebody's dashboard display and you see their, you know, um, track artist, you know, Radio Bruce News. And you think, oh, look at that album, Radio <laughs> Bruce News. is are song,
0: episode 95, William uh, well, Warren Porsley.
1: I couldn't help though, yeah, looking at it and thinking, no, it's 102. It's, it's but anyway... That's
0: it's one eight no, it's, it's episode well
1: I sorry, it's sorry. it's, yeah, it's ninety nine D, I think we're up to now.
0: I couldn't help. Getting but look closer at it. and
1: closer to that hundredth episode, folks. Just pretend you didn't listen two weeks ago.
0: <sighs> well all, all I could think of when I saw the, uh, the the photo was that she really needs to dust her uh, dashboard. But um Oh sorry about that. geez, anything <laughs> else you want to shit can? <laughs> but I haven't shit can anything this I I didn't shit can anything last week. Um you know, and that was cards and letters. And that was cards and letters. Uh, now, money, that's what we want. Uh, thank you. We've had a couple of people come on uh, to show that they love the show um, and come on as uh, patrons. Uh, let's see. We have had uh, Get Hopped. Um, a couple of uh, yeah. cheeky, sneaky businesses have come in. Um, Get Hopped. Get um, which uh, sells growlers and uh, various brewer paraphernalia. Um, thank you very much for your uh, coming on as an executive producer. And Dermot Dowling, who is a, you know uh, been a long listener of the show, has also come on um, as a uh, sponsor. Dermot, uh, who distributes uh, the Gladfield malt um, and a number of hop products, uh, has suggested a guest. So we might have to. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure that we can subvert our half-assed advertising. Um,
1: are, you, are you suggesting that some, some listeners may be uh, taking, using the opportunity as a, a pay to play?
0: <laughs> well, no, he, he, he's a uh, um, Dermot. He's, he's from a lovely beer bloke. Code. Yeah, beer lo- 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 Lovely Talk bloke. And, uh, he's very good, very good marketer. And uh, he's taken our uh, executive producer um, option and suggested one of his, uh, one of his products um, as, as a potential interview. Um, so that might be a little bit beyond the pale. I'm happy to talk about advertising, but
1: uh... no, I'm sure we can. I'm sure we can um, accommodate Dermot because he has. And look, I love the fact that uh, I love getting the feedback, even you know, without cards and letters, music. Um, and Dermot's always very good at kind of uh, letting us know when uh, when he thinks that we've we've done well and uh, you know tackled a, a topic well. So um, good on him. Welcome aboard. Thank you yes. for that, and thank you. So, we, so Dan Summers. Um, uh, who else have we got? Paul, Paul Pacey. Paul Pacey, yeah. Uh, Chris Iamagawa. Chris, I tell you what, we're gonna to have, to, have We're gonna. We're gonna have credits at the end of the uh, of the show, Matt.
0: May we do this? Right. Yeah, it's gonna be scrolling credits. It is. Yeah. Um, no, but
1: thank so, you for Well, all that's those. nice. Thank, thank you for your support.
0: It is. It is a so, uh, I, I think we're up to a cart in a month for you. So, uh, yeah. yeah so go, and. Man. All of the money that you uh, um, donate or uh, all of the patronage you give uh, does go to Prof um, to to thank him for his time. So, uh, yes, thank you very, very much uh, all. Um, And, yeah, we'll have a chat to Dermot about looking and seeing if we can get Brian Crosby on um, from Crosby Hops and uh, having a bit of a chat. But, uh, yeah, we'll just have to see. Um, But we did speak to uh, Gladfield Malt, uh, Gabby um, from Gladfield Malt. So you can certainly go back. Um, and here one of other Dermot's other clients uh, at Gladfield Malt. But uh, yeah, no it, businesses. If you are out there, don't forget we do <laughs> actually sell advertising. So uh, um, yeah, um, we're ha- happy to give you a bit of love if you come on as an executive producer as well. Um, prof, what have you got coming up this week? No, nothing. I've got a, I've got a quiet
1: oh. one. Matt, it's school holidays down here in Melbourne, so. I've got, um, you know, uh, preteen sleepovers. I've got um, bowling excursions and movies and all sorts of stuff. So I'll be, um, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be busy, but not in a beery way.
0: Not in a beery way. Well, uh, I'm frantically gearing up for our uh, ex- annual exhibition uh, excursion. Um, Ten days of taking beer out to the people. So that's keeping me busy, and also heavily involved in the CBIA conference. Uh, hosting a dinner, a media dinner, to show members of the media um, just how good Australian craft beer is and some good beer and food matches, as well as hosting the uh, Art of Selling Craft. Uh, and I know that you've got a full program up there, Prof, so looking forward to, to getting together there. Um, but speaking of, and I'm hoping that Lockie's back this week, because I tell you what, Prof, I edited the last two episodes. I reckon I did a pretty good job, lots of, uh, you know, a few laughs, of, you know, some good sound effects, yeah, and I got it, it out on time. It, 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 more, most importantly, timely. Yeah. <laughs> got Not it out regular. timely, but it, i tell you what, it takes a lot of time to, uh, w- which is why I remember that think the wheels regularly used to fall off the, uh, the bicycle before we had our uh, producer Lockie on. We miss you, Lockie. Uh, so we do miss you, Lockie. Lockie.
1: And, and but, uh, we, we might even get some uh, outro music from uh, from Lockie playing ukulele live in his Hawaiian shirt when he returns from Hawaii. We, we might get Lockie
0: to do that. See if Lockie can do a bit of beer barrel polka. Polka on, ukulele on the ukulele. So uh, get practicing, Lockie. But uh, just in case, Prof, I am going to choose the music for this week, and I really enjoyed that little bit of upbeat. Uh, music last week that was, you know, it was a beer drinking song, or a, a song that captured the feeling that a good beer brings you. So I thought I'd just go with a little bit more yeah, yeah. feel good. Um, this, I see what you did there. Uh, but Prof, always good to chat. Um, thanks for joining me for yet another um, podcast and look forward to chatting with you next week. Take care, listeners. Thanks, Matt. See you soon. <laughs> Then we're out, Matt. I reckon if we get to episode two hundred, we might just about have nailed this <laughs> podcasting caper.
1: Do you reckon? How many patrons do you reckon we'll have by then? <laughs> if we keep upsetting them. No, well it might. Um, no, well you know, if, they, if they keep coming on board, then uh, it, it might be. And thanks to all the following people, that was Radio Bruges News. We'll see you next week.
0: He's hoping, Prof. He's hoping.